0: The following podcast is part of a certified educational activity titled New Advances and Opportunities for Improvement in Hormone Receptor Positive HER2 Negative Early Breast Cancer, Practical Strategies for Optimal Clinical Integration of Adjuvant CDK4 and 6-Inhibitor Therapy. Access the entire activity and complete the post-test at peerview.com forward slash AGM860. Downloadable slides and practice aids are also available.
1: My name is Sarah Talaney. I'm a breast medical oncologist at Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. Today we're going to be talking about advances and opportunities for improving outcomes in our patients with early-stage hormone receptor positive HER2 negative breast cancer, really with a focus on practical strategies for integration of CDK4-6 inhibition in the adjuvant setting. As we know, about 30% of patients who are diagnosed with hormone receptor positive, HER2 negative, early stage breast cancer are at risk for recurrence. And this risk increases as clinical pathologic features increase in risk. And so because of this, we know that new treatment options are needed to help us prevent recurrence in these higher risk hormone receptor positive breast cancer patients. And in fact, we have made progress in this area with results that have recently come out from Monarch E, leading to FDA approval of abemaciclib in patients with early stage hormone receptor positive breast cancer. With this now approval, it really leads to the importance of having further discussions about the clinical implications of use of abemaciclib in this setting. And really thinking about optimal ways to integrate CDK4-6 inhibition in our early stage patients. So when we think about treatment for early stage hormone receptor positive breast cancer, for the last several years, we've really only relied on the use of endocrine therapy alone in this population. We've been fortunate to have agents like tamoxifen and aromatase inhibitors, and even availability of ovarian suppression, particularly for our premenopausal patients. However, even with the integration of these robust endocrine agents, there still are patients with high-risk hormone receptor-positive breast cancer who, unfortunately, recur despite this therapy. So, I think this case sort of puts into perspective the unmet need that we have now in our patients with hormone receptor-positive disease. So, this is a 54-year-old postmenopausal woman who had undergone a mastectomy and axillary dissection for a early stage breast cancer, but at the time of surgery was in fact found to have six centimeters of intermediate grade invasive lobular cancer within her breast and upon axillary dissection actually had three involved lymph nodes. Given data that's come out from our expander, this patient did have a, a genomic assay performed off the breast tumor, which came back with an Oncotype DX score of eight. This tumor was very strongly ER and PR positive and HER2 negative. And so we'll circle back to this case later on in our discussion, but I think it frames nicely a case for where we're looking for additional therapy to help prevent risk of recurrence. So data for use of CDK4-6 inhibition in the early stage setting really comes from the Monarch E study. This was a pivotal registrational trial that took patients who had high-risk hormone receptor positive HER2-negative disease and randomized them to receive two years of abemaciclib in combination with their endocrine therapy or to receive their endocrine therapy alone. The patient population in this study, again, was high-risk. And this was defined as having four or more positive lymph nodes or being node positive with one to three positive nodes and having a tumor that was over five centimeters or was high grade. This was the definition for high risk patients in cohort one of this trial. There was also a cohort two in the study that was specifically for patients who had high KI-67 but Um, did not meet the other criteria for eligibility, meaning they didn't have a tumor over five centimeters uh, and were not high grade when they had one to three lymph nodes involved. This cohort was smaller relative to the overall population of the study and was only about 500 patients. But the primary endpoint of the study was to look at invasive disease-free survival. And as was noted, this trial did enroll high-risk patients. You can see here that when looking at number of patients who had large tumors over five centimeters, that was around 20% of the population. When you look at those patients who had four or more positive nodes, in fact, that's about 60% of patients in this trial. Most patients had grade two or three disease. And then this will be important as we circle back um, to the FDA approval, but when you look at the percentage of patients who had high Ki67, it was about 45% of patients in the study. So we've now seen data for uh, the primary endpoint of this trial, which is invasive disease-free survival. The study demonstrated that giving two years of adjuvant abemacyclib in combination with endocrine therapy did reduce risk of invasive disease-free survival events by about 30%. And the absolute difference between the two arms was 5.4%. And this was seen uh, with about 27 months of follow-up in the intent to treat population. When you look at outcomes across all subgroups, you can really see that there is not a subgroup that is not deriving benefit from a bemocyclib. So really whether you had one to three positive nodes or four positive nodes, or were premenopausal or postmenopausal, um, all these different subgroups of patients are deriving benefit from therapy. Importantly, When you look at distant relapse-free survival, you also see a very significant reduction in events. So there was a 31% reduction in distant relapse-free survival events with an absolute difference of about 4% between the two arms. When you actually look at where these distant events were, they were predominantly bone and liver metastases, which I think is important to realize because this is really preventing true metastatic events that can eventually have implications on survival for our patients. We have now seen several analyses from Monarch E. Um, The first analysis that we had seen had come from the second interim analysis at the time point where we had actually gotten positive data back. There was then data from the primary outcome of the trial and then subsequently data from an additional analysis that actually had been requested by the FDA that had 27 months of follow-up. And so when we look now over time in a piecewise way, looking at benefits that were achieved um, with between years zero to one, and then subsequently one to two, and then two plus, you can see that the piecewise hazard ratio actually improves with time. So originally, uh, if you look between years zero to one, the hazard ratio is about 0.79. However, when you get to year two and beyond, the hazard ratio is about 0.6. And so again, I think this is important because there has been some concern about whether or not the benefit of adjuvant CDK46 inhibition could go away, particularly at that two year and beyond time point, at which point patients have discontinued their adjuvant abemacyclob. And so here you're seeing, in fact, continued improvement, which I think, again, is really reassuring uh, given initial concerns uh, that maybe the curves would come back together with further time. But given these very robust um, data from the trial, we did see FDA approval uh, for uh, this abemacyclob regimen. So the approval came for patients who met the high-risk criteria in Monarch E but interestingly was also for patients who had a Ki67 that was greater than or equal to 20%. And so many of us wondered why it was that the FDA had chosen not to just grant approval to the intent to treat population, but rather more specifically to those patients, again, who met monarchy eligibility, but also had a high Ki67. And so some data that we have now seen emerge and comes from the sort of preliminary overall survival data that was looked at with 27 months of follow-up. Again, this is a very early time point. This was not a predefined OS analysis. Uh, This was simply an exploratory look at the time of putting data together for the FDA submission. And what you see is that in fact, uh, there's really no difference in survival. The hazard ratio is pretty much exactly one. If you look numerically at the um, survival events, Numerically, it is technically slightly higher in the abemaciclib arm with 96 events compared to 90 events in the endocrine therapy alone arm. However, when you look at survival um, within those patients who had a high KI-67, you can see that in fact the hazard ratio here is 0.77, favoring the patients who got abemaciclib with fewer um, survival events in those patients who had high ki 67 who had received both the and endocrine therapy compared to endocrine therapy alone. I however, will note that this should be looked at very cautiously. Uh, this was not a predefined time point. This was an exploratory look at data um, and it's very early to be looking at survival events. Um, so again, I think to be viewed with caution. But I think the idea here was that there was at least a trend towards survival advantage in the high K67 group, whereas there was no trend in the ITT population where again, the hazard ratio, that point estimate was one. And so I think part of the rationale for the FDA approval specifically in the high K67 group does stem from this trend in OS um, really because they wanna pick a population where they know there is um, benefit and definitely not harm. However, I think it's important when thinking about KI-67 to really look at the IDFS data, because again, I think survival data is very hard to interpret with 27 months of follow-up, particularly in ER ER-positive disease. And so what you see here is when you look at patients who had high KI-67, and you look at IDFS and the intent to treat population, you see about a 34% reduction in IDFS events with an absolute difference of about 6% between the two arms. When you look um, specifically at cohort one, so remember cohort one was the population that met those high risk criteria, having four or more positive nodes or one to three nodes with tumor over five centimeters or high grade. Within this group, you see that the absolute difference between the arms is 7%, so even larger. Because remember cohort two, which is small, um, you didn't have to have those high clinical pathologic features of tumor over five centimeters or high grade. Instead, you had to meet eligibility by high ki 67 But enrollment to this cohort actually occurred much later during monarchy. And so events in that group and cohort two are not mature and would be very early. And so data from cohort two separately has not uh, yet been shown, again, because it is um, too immature for analysis. But what I think is interesting here is that if you look at benefit in both high and low KI-67, in fact, the hazard ratios for benefit in the high and low group are actually almost the same. Um, There are, however, fewer events in the low KI-67 group. Again, we know KI-67 is prognostic, as you can see here that low KI-67 patients will have fewer events compared to high KI-67. Therefore, the absolute benefit in the high KI-67 group is larger, it's 7%, whereas the absolute benefit in the low KI-67 group is smaller at about 4.5%. But I think important to realize here, Ki67 is not predictive of benefit to abemacyclob. Again, both low and high Ki67 patients are benefiting with similar relative risk reductions. It's the absolute risk that is larger, sorry, the absolute benefit that is larger in the high Ki67 patients. Again, these are higher risk patients. Ki67 is prognostic, but not predictive of a abemacyclob benefit. And I think this is important because when we look at our really high risk patients, so those patients who have four or more positive nodes, in fact, what you see is the majority of patients with four or more positive nodes, in fact, have low Ki67. And so this is really relevant in my mind because I know these patients have high risk of recurrence and yet technically would fall outside the FDA indication because again, to meet FDA indication, you had to have a high Ki67. And I think this is challenging for us in clinic because again, you have a patient before you with multiple nodes who you know is at high risk of recurrence and yet um, is not eligible technically by the FDA guidelines for use of abemaciclib. So again, I think important to realize that this is not an infrequent problem given the prevalence of low Ki67 in the multi-node positive group of patients. I think the other challenge that we have is Ki67 is a challenging biomarker because it has low analytical validity. And I will say personally at our institution, our pathologists do not routinely run Ki67 because of this challenge where there is Difficulties with getting and um, seeing interobserver variability with reading KI 67. And because of this, the International KI 67 Breast Cancer Working Group, in fact, has felt that getting KI 67 reads between 5 and 30 percent is really not reliable. And so has felt that there's unacceptable analytic validity within this range. And yet, this is the range for which the FDA indication falls, making it clear challenging for us in clinic. You know, what if you have someone who comes back with a Ki67 of 18%, is that really that different than 20% when it falls into this range where there isn't great validity for the assay? So I think because of all these challenges um, with the Ki67 biomarker and really trying to juxtapose risk and benefit with a BEMACyclib, in fact, when the ASCO guideline committee met, they decided to recommend use of abemaciclib really for patients who otherwise would have met the monarchy intent to treat eligibility. So this means patients who had four or more positive nodes or one to three positive nodes in a tumor over five centimeters or high grade. And that while in fact, again, the FDA indication is for high Ki67, they felt that Abemacyclip could be used regardless of Ki67 value for patients who meet monarchy eligibility. So it is looser um, in the guidelines than the actual FDA indication. And so I think putting all this into perspective, I think it makes us come back to our case now, because here again, you have a woman who has a large tumor, so over five centimeters um, and has three positive nodes. So this patient would have met Monarchy eligibility because again, one to three positive nodes and tumor over five centimeters, you meet eligibility. And this is a patient, however, who um, had an Oncotype score sent. And at the time Monarchy was conducted, we did not have data from our exponder, so it was not common to be getting genomic assays in patients and omitting chemotherapy. In fact, 95% of patients in Monarchy had received chemotherapy. Yet, now we know that even in patients who have one to three positive nodes, if you have a low oncotype in a postmenopausal patient, in fact, there is no benefit for chemotherapy. And so this patient would not receive chemotherapy given the RESPONDER data. So it doesn't really fit into sort of the average patient in monarchy since again, almost everyone in that trial had received chemo. Um, and given that she has a low oncotype, it is possible she also would have a low Ki67 given that, you know, it is a proliferative marker. Uh, And we see this not uncommonly in lobular cancers. So I think when I see this patient in clinic, now I feel a little bit challenged because if I were to use the FDA indication, I would say, well, I have to order a Ki67. And if it comes back low as it probably would in this patient, then she would not meet FDA indication for treatment. However, this is a patient I think that has pretty high risk disease. She's got a large tumor, three positive nodes, um, and from clinical pathologic features does have high risk. And I am now omitting chemotherapy and really wanna figure out other ways to optimize her treatment. So in fact, this is a patient that I would prescribe a bemacyclib to again, and does meet ASCO guidelines for indication. I will say in truth, I am not routinely ordering Ki67 because I don't really know how to use it because I do agree with ASCO guidelines that I would like to use it in all patients who met eligibility based on the ITT population. So I think when thinking about utilization of abemacyclib, it's not only challenging to just make sure we figure out the right patient population, but now we're integrating a new drug uh, into our adjuvant setting and it does come up with a lot of practical considerations. So one question would be, which patient should really get the adjuvant abemacyclob as we were alluding to? Two would be, how should it be administered? And three, how should toxicities be managed? And so one thing that I think is pretty handy is this uh, supplemental resource, which is a practice aid, which will cover a lot of this information that we're going to review about really how to practically use. Abemaciclib in the adjuvant setting. And so you can download this uh, just to have a, a nice reference available for you uh, for practical standards. So first question, which patients do we use it in? So I think as we've reviewed, and um, I think given the ASCO guidelines, I think it's very reasonable to utilize abemaciclib in patients who met monarchy ITT um, population. So tumor over four centimeters, or one to three positive nodes in tumor over five centimeters or high grade. And here I've written to use it irrespective of KI67, again, given the challenges that we reviewed with KI67 testing and the fact that it, in fact, was not predictive of a memocyclob benefit, but rather is simply prognostic. So what about when we see patients in clinic who do not receive chemotherapy? When Monarch E was conducted, we didn't have data from our exponder. And so we were not checking genomic assays in patients who had node-positive disease. And so most patients were all getting chemotherapy. And you can see this because 95% of patients, in fact, in monarchy e had received chemotherapy. But what do we do now when we see patients who have one to three positive nodes and we get a genomic assay and it's low and we want to omit chemotherapy? Um, does this data really pertain to those patients who are not receiving chemotherapy? I, my opinion is that I think it does because we know, in fact, that abemaciclib provided benefit in patients with one to three positive nodes. And so given this, I have felt very comfortable using abemaciclib even in patients who are not receiving adjuvant chemotherapy. So what about patients who have a germline BRCA mutation? We are very fortunate now that we have data that came from the Olympia trial that looked at a year of Olaparib in patients with germline BRCA mutations and found a 40% reduction in invasive disease-free survival events. So what do you do now if you have a patient who has hormone receptor-positive disease that would otherwise meet monarchy eligibility and has a germline BRCA mutation? Do you give them a year of Olaparib? Or do you give them a Bemacyclib? Or do you think about sequencing olaparib and abemacyclob. And here I think we're in a data-free zone, because in fact, we do not have data from Monarchy that specifically gives us outcomes for patients with germline BRCA mutations. And I think also important to keep in mind that in Olympia, only about 20% of patients actually had hormone receptor positive disease. So it was a minority of patients in this trial um, where we have data. So my personal opinion is that we know that Olaparib is a highly effective agent in patients with germline BRCA mutations, and biologically, it makes sense to use a PARP inhibitor in this population. And so my preference, given the dramatic improvement in invasive disease-free survival seen in Olympia is to use Olaparib in someone with a germline BRCA mutation. However, if I were to see a patient with extremely high-risk disease, so maybe someone who has 20 positive lymph nodes, I might be tempted to think about sequencing a laparib followed by a bemocyclib, Again, simply because this patient has such high risk of disease um, recurrence that I wanna try to optimize outcomes as much as I can. That being said, I think we do have to be cautious here. Again, we do not have data for sequencing. We do not have long-term safety data for doing such a sequence. Um, so again, only to be used with caution in someone with extraordinarily high-risk disease. So thinking about safety, also important to think about toxicities that we see with these drugs. And so one of the more common toxicities with the bemocyclib is GI toxicity with diarrhea. In fact, most diarrhea is low-grade diarrhea. However, it does take you know good counseling with your patient for how to manage that and how to inform you if they're having challenges with diarrhea, particularly very early on, where we see rates of discontinuation from abemacyclob monarchy being highest, particularly within the first three months of exposure. Beyond three months, really issues with diarrhea go away almost. Most of the diarrhea outside of three months was about 30% of people having grade one diarrhea uh, and really not seeing high grade diarrhea out of that um, initial time frame. This agent can also cause neutropenia. It's not, um, you know, so common to have high grade neutropenia with bemocyclib. About 20% of patients can experience grade three, four neutropenia, but it can require uh, dose modification and does require monitoring. Um, so that's important to realize. The things that I worry a little bit about are risk of VTE. And um, so there's a 2.5% risk of blood clot in patients receiving bemocyclib compared to only 0.6% in the endocrine alone arm. So clearly abemaciclib is increasing risk of blood clot. There also was about a 3% rate of interstitial lung disease. And so I think very important to warn your patients about this potential uh, toxicity with bemocyclib. So one interesting finding, however, was despite these toxicities that we've reviewed, when patient-reported outcomes were collected in monarchy and patients were asked how bothered they were by their side effects, in fact, uh, patients were no more bothered than their side effects in the abemaciclib arm compared to the endocrine therapy alone arm, which I think is quite interesting. How, given the risk of blood clot with abemaciclib. If you specifically look at rates based on choice of endocrine therapy, you do see that rates of VTE are higher in the tamoxifen arm. And so it's about 4% in the tamoxifen arm, um, which is, you know, much higher than those patients getting aromatase inhibition where it's under 2%. And so I think because of this, I think it's really important that we are cautious about use of tamoxifen in patients who may have other predisposing factors to blood clot. Um, because again, that rate is on the higher side and I think one that we do have to be cautious about. Again, the diarrhea is um, something you do have to talk to your patients about. Median time to onset is pretty early, six to eight days. I do provide all my patients with loperamide up front, telling them how to use it, uh, to use it at the onset of diarrhea. Um, and that they do need to call me if they're having difficulty with diarrhea because I do hold the abemacyclob with grade two diarrhea. And then depending on how quickly it resolves, we'll either restart that dose when they get better or dose reduce um, if it took them longer to um, resolve their grade two diarrhea. Um, So you can go from 150 milligrams twice daily down to 100 um, when you dose reduce. Again, we did mention this risk of ILD. So really important to warn your patients about it so that if they do have some shortness of breath or dyspnea on exertion, they are calling you, and you can work it up with a high-res CT for further evaluation and certainly important to also rule out infection as well. Neutropenia, again, not quite as common with abemacyclob as compared to other CDK4-6 inhibitors, but you do have to check a CBC with differential as well as a comprehensive metabolic panel inpatients um, every two weeks for the first two months uh, to monitor, and um, so you're checking both for neutropenia uh, as well as making sure you're not seeing elevated transaminases. One tricky thing with epimacyclob is it does have an impairment of the creatinine transporter. So it does falsely make your creatinine look high. It can make you think someone has renal insufficiency. And so when I see that, I often check a cystatin C, which will give you the GFR, um, and you know that way you'll realize if they truly have renal insufficiency or not. So it's a good way to correct for um, this issue with the impact on the creatinine transporter. So I think putting this all into perspective, um, taking this patient now, we come back to our case with a 54-year-old postmenopausal woman who had three positive nodes, a tumor over five centimeters, and a low oncotype. This was a patient that we decided, given the low oncotype, we would omit chemotherapy from. And given that she met monarchy eligibility, um, I did not send a Ki67, but rather prescribed an aromatase inhibitor with a plan for two years of abemacyclib. I also uh, gave her zolendronic acid, given the data that we have for use of bisphosphonate uh, in terms of prevention of um, disease-free survival events. So I think you know overall we're really fortunate now to have a new agent uh, in the early stage hormone receptor positive space. It's been 20 years without a new agent that's been approved here. So really, um, you know, remarkable to be able to help our patients with high risk hormone receptor positive breast cancer. Um, with using uh, abemacyclob. And so I think, again, just to remember the monarchy eligibility, uh, which is really helpful for when you're seeing uh, patients in clinic. And don't forget um, to think about these practical uh, guidelines when you're monitoring patients as well. Thank you.
0: This activity is certified by Medical Learning Institute, Incorporated. This activity is developed with our educational partner, PVI, Peerview Institute for Medical Education. Thank you for listening. Download materials and complete the post-test for instant credit at peerview.com forward slash AGM 860. This activity is supported by an educational grant from Lilly.